Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The name is so powerful. Uh, lately, I found myself with someone very dear to me in need, uh, taking authority over the spirit of infirmity and over a very strong and powerful cult spirit of someone that's about 1,300 miles from here, believing that the name of Jesus is powerful enough. The devil may not hear my voice, but he's hearing something in the spirit realm. Because of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there is no other name under heaven that is given among men that is more powerful than the name of Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Everything we do in word and in deed, we do in and through the name of Jesus. Everything. Everything. Can you say amen to that? Thank you, Jesus. So glad to have you tonight in the house of the Lord. There is a round of sickness going around again. Nobody will dare mention that that uh, plague of COVID. It's just the flu. It's just what we always get. You know, it's you know they're trying to make people wear masks again and. The only people wearing masks anymore are the people that are robbing convenience stores. And <laughs> I always felt a little devious wearing a mask. You know, I had their search to say, put up your hands. Give me all your money. <laughs> Never did, of course. So the Lord is good. Let's have our ushers come receive an offering. There for a minute, I thought the Lord had raptured this whole section till. Mr. Werner walked in. The Galans are here. I want to pray for these that are sick. Uh, Sister Rudd is sick. Marmanos uh, praying for Ashley and the pastor and Ashley's mother. They have a great time and that they don't get sick on their trip. They can fully enjoy their tour of the Holy Land come back excited with what they have witnessed and seen and want the Lord to bless our offering tonight. We assume that God just accepts any old thing we give him, but I think that's a false assumption. We need him to accept and receive our praise tonight and to receive what we give cheerfully in this offering. So let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We're so glad to be in the house of the Lord. We anticipate and are excited about the word of the Lord we're going to hear in a moment. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but many of them are sick tonight, and we pray for a quick recovery for them, for the touch of virtue to flow from this room into their lives. We pray for the offering, that you will bless the offering, receive it, multiply it. We pray for the pastor, Ashley, and her mom. And all those that are on the trip to the Holy Land, you will give them safe return to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.
Just remember, God loves a cheerful giver. I didn't say liver, a cheerful giver. But you can't give cheerfully if you're not living cheerfully. Do you know that every breath you take is another gift from God? Every single breath. The Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything is sustained by God. If, he, if it was possible to distract God for a moment, everything would just, everybody would die, the world would, everything would just go away. God upholds everything by the word of his power. And we're glad to be in his service. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. <clears throat> I've been dwelling on this that we're going to talk about tonight for a number of months now. Uh, finally put it into a teachable form. And uh, we have two Thursday nights with you. And uh, hopefully that we'll be able to convey uh, what I feel like the Lord has been talking to me about. Acts 2 and 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all, everybody say all, all with one accord in one place. Being in one place is the easy part. Being in one accord is not quite the same thing. Uh, People will gather this Saturday in stadiums, and I guarantee you they will not be in one accord. Some of them will be for one of the teams, and others will be for the other team. Uh, we've accomplished part of this tonight. We're at least in one place, these that are here. Philippians 2, uh, five verses from uh, beginning from verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And it's not saying that uh, because of uh, covetousness but we need to look out for one another. Then let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Would you repeat with me? That will be quite an undertaking. Go ahead. It'll be quite an undertaking. I understand that, but we're going to deal with it uh, tonight. Nevertheless, you may be seated. Thank you. Uh, what we're going to talk about tonight uh is going to be completely different than uh, what we're going to present to you next Thursday night. will be the, the same theme, but it will be in a completely different format. Uh, so I don't want you to think that we're going to just be so redundant that we're going to just drive this nail till we wear it out. But we're going to talk about something that I refer to as the elusive state of agreement the elusive state of agreement, the elusive state of unity. Of course, I'm not speaking about that in any other than within the church of the living God and with and among the people of God. 
my approach to this subject will be both pragmatic, it will also be biblically based, and I assure you that there will be moments when all of us, including myself, will feel some discomfort, uh, but if we're truly kingdom-minded, if we are genuinely kingdom-minded, if, if that is really uh, true about us, each and every one of us, then we'll receive uh, that which is going to be presented tonight uh, with an open heart. John chapter 17 and 11, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, referring to his 12 disciples. And I come to thee, and he says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Uh, it's clear that the will of God for apostolic believers uh, is for them to be like-minded and in a state of biblically defined agreement. I say it that way because uh, it's necessary to do so. The importance of agreement and what agreement can accomplish uh, uh, in and through the body of Christ is indisputable. We have witnessed it uh, in the Word of God. We have seen the result of that agreement. We're going to address it tonight within the church in Jerusalem and the tremendous impact that they had upon their city and upon their world. Unity, therefore, is paramount, absolutely, unquestionably paramount to the effectiveness of any church, any group, and any organization. But just because we're functioning as an organization, just because we're dotting the I's and we're crossing the T's and we're taking care of business, so to speak, does not guarantee that we are effective as a spiritual body. It does not guarantee, nor does it indicate or mean that we are operating as an effective and powerfully anointed spiritual body in our city. Because our concept of agreement, uh, most likely from one individual to another, uh, may differ, of course, based on uh, many different factors, I think it's necessary for us to narrow the definition of uh, agreement, which is, of course, going to be the primary purpose of this Bible study here tonight. Agreement, therefore, is not just consenting to the will of the majority. It's not just consenting to the will of the majority. Then what is agreement? Agreement is being equally invested and equally committed to the same endeavor. It's when we are equally invested and equally committed to the mission of the church, to the purpose for which God has placed us in the world today. And so in applying and utilizing the gifts, the talents, and so on that God has given each of us with all of the divine energy that is at our disposal that we may accomplish the will of God. The whole purpose of it is so that we can accomplish the will of God, the will of God. So agreement and unity within the church is so important to God, and it's so important to the success of the work of God 
that there are clearly stated consequences for anyone who would cause or promote division. It is so important to the work of God. The, uh, the Proverbs said there were seven things that the Lord hates. The seventh is he that soweth discord among the brethren. Have you ever tried to be somewhere in a hurry and there was someone in your way and they wouldn't get out of your way? They're hindering your progress. There are people right now in the kingdom of God, they're not stirring anything up. They're not causing any strife or contention. They're just not getting out of the way. They're, they're excess baggage. They're holding the people of God back. They're holding the church back from what God wants them to do uh, in the work of God. So unfortunately, and I say it that way because it is unfortunate, but however common today for believers to use their gifts and to use their talents that God has bestowed upon them, to use them for secular promotion and for financial gain rather than for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, that's been discussed in the apostolic community for at least the last two decades. So many uh, young, talented, qualified men and women of God were pursuing secular careers that would bring them financial reward, but they were not interested in using those gifts in the kingdom of God. And so it is an issue today within the apostolic community that many of God's people are using the gifts and talents that he gave them to promote and forward the kingdom of God. They are using them for their own benefit and not for the benefit of the kingdom. I think this could very well be one of the greatest hindrances to revival in the apostolic church in America today. Luke 16, 13 says, no servant can serve two masters. No servant. We're all servants of something. But it says, no servant can serve two masters. Doesn't even talk about three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten. Just two. You can't even serve two effectively. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot, it says, Jesus was very, very affirmative about this. You cannot serve God in mammon or materialism or the pursuit of things. So if money and if career and promotion or if the pursuit of the status of what these things can bring is your master, then that is what you are serving. That is what you're giving your talent to. That is what you're giving your energy to. That's what you're giving all of your creative energy to. And that is not the will of God for his people. Now, we're going to elaborate on that because uh, there's, there's more to this than uh, just meets the eye. Because uh, I believe that there's going to be a price to pay uh, for those who use the things God has given them for self-promotion and not for the kingdom of God. You see, we're in a very, very specific period of time. God has ordained that we're alive right now in the days, months, and years preceding the coming of the Lord. We are, we are placed here for a, for a time such as this. We're not here by accident. We're not, the, we're not the result of a biological reaction. We are the result of God's will. We are here now for a supreme purpose, and God is gifting uh, men and women of God for this hour to fulfill his will and to bring apostolic revival to this world. So one of the challenges uh, that's not new to us as end-time believers, I believe it has been the challenge of uh, 
Holy Ghost-filled apostolic people since the Holy Ghost was originally poured out, but it's merging our humanity with Christ's divinity, merging our carnality with his spirituality, merging out the characteristics portrayed and inherent within us with the characteristics that are inherently in him. And while this may seem like a small thing in retrospect to everything else that we're dealing with in life, in order for, the, uh, for Apostle Paul to accomplish this in his own life, he said uh, emphatically, I must die daily. And I think we read over that a lot of times. We don't give it a lot of thought, a lot of concern. We don't dwell on it. But if you think about it for any length of time, you understand uh, what Paul was talking about. And in order for him to do what he did, to accomplish what he accomplished, for him to stay in tune with the Spirit of God, with all of the abuse he had to take uh, with a thorn in his flesh that was sent to him by God, for him to deal with all of that and still be effective in the work of God, he said, I must die daily. He also, in speaking openly about his own personal struggles and uh, his, uh, his propensity to be, exalt himself and feel pride, he talked about all of us who need to crucify our flesh on a regular basis. Uh, and he talked about these things very candidly. So we're not ignorant of uh, our Lord's rebuke of the uh, church in Laodicea. And uh, we understand, I think, I hope we do at least, the reason for his rebuke and for his reproof of that church and of that group of people, very strong rebuke. I mean, it was of, of the other uh, churches that were reproved and admonished through the seven letters in Asia Minor. I mean, the church in Laodicea received the strongest rebuke of all. But I think it's worthy of note that uh, our Lord's censure of this church uh, did not mention demon spirits. I believe one of the churches it mentioned where Satan's seat is. But when it came to Laodicea, there was no mention of demonic influences whatsoever. There was no mention of government interference with the church in Laodicea. There was no mention to social pressure that was being exerted upon them that caused them to become a lukewarm. There was no mention of extenuating circumstances that uh, had... Uh, uh, afflicted them with this particular spiritual malady. It is so that the members of the Laodicean church were just simply guilty of using their gifts, using their talents for personal gain and for personal promotion while the kingdom of God was in a state of disrepair, stagnation, and decline. While they were growing richer, the church was growing weaker. While they were getting stronger socially, economically, the church was in decline. They were highly gifted. You see, Laodicea was uh, a, on a trading route. It was a very metropolitan city. There were uh, many, many opportunities for people there, unlike many of the other cities in Asia Minor or in, 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 in any part of the world. And they used those things for their own benefit and not for the benefit of the kingdom of God. And Lord willing, if we have time, we'll touch on this a little bit later. In Acts chapter 2, 
44 through 47 says, And all they believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I think that we've always been at least since I've been in church, enamored with the unshakable unity that was portrayed by the church in Jerusalem. It's really an amazing thing to observe, and it's been preached about uh, in many apostolic courts, churches, uh, seminars, conferences, and so on, no one ever seems to tell us how we can achieve that. We always hear about what they had and what we don't have, but no one ever seemed to recommend a solution to the lack of agreement and unity in the apostolic community, at least the church in America. But in my observation of the church in Jerusalem and that, uh, that sense of unity and agreement and accord that they possessed uh, was... Uh, completely organic. I mean, it was spontaneous. It wasn't something that was predictable. It wasn't something that they tried to produce. It's just something that happened. It just, and I'm not saying that it that there were not conditions through which it occurred, but it wasn't like the apostles uh, came down from the upper room with a plan uh, to uh, keep whatever believers they could accumulate over the next few years uh, in a state of one accord. It was something that just happened among them. It didn't occur in other cities. It didn't occur in other churches. Read the epistles. The, the, the letters to the churches uh, dealt with disagreement uh, it, and, and dealt with the lack of agreement and the lack of one accord in other churches. It existed solely in the church in Jerusalem. And while we marvel uh, that the believers in the church at Jerusalem had all things common. Believers outside of Jerusalem did not share the same cohesiveness. And I'm not saying they were not in agreement, but what we read about in, among the believers in Jerusalem is incredible. I mean, it, they sold everything and just gave it to one another. You need a car? Here, I'll sell one. Here, you know, here's a car. You know, they, they just sold everything. And, and distributed among the believers. Now, understandably, uh, God knew that in about 30 years, Titus is going to march through here and wipe everything off the face of the earth. You might as well get rid of everything. You're not going to have it anyway. But they didn't know that. Uh, but So I believe that giving was also spontaneous as a result of the Spirit of God moving on them to make those kind of financial and economic commitments. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 10, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. That's almost laughable today. Are you kidding me? That you all speak the same thing? I mean, we live in a very, bi uh, let me put it like, a polarized climate. It's polarized in so many different ways, politically, religiously, economically, that we all speak the same thing. But he's speaking to apostolic people. He's not talking to people of the world. 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Do you understand? Do you read the, the uh, superlatives that he uses here? Same thing. Speak the same thing. No divisions. Perfectly joined together. Same mind. Same. For have been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So not only were these people within the Corinthian church not in agreement, the atmosphere of the church was contentious. The atmosphere of the church was competitive. The atmosphere of the church was adversarial. Not only were they not in agreement, they were at each other's throat. And the reason, part of the reason is verse 12 and 13. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I'm of a Paul, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? They had an identity crisis. And they were, they were, they were exalting and said, well, I follow Paul, so I don't know what the rest of you, I don't know what's wrong with you. Well, I follow Christ. And it had completely broken down any sense of agreement within the Corinthian church. And Paul was addressing that. But I, I want to just remind you of what Paul was saying by the name of the Lord, that ye all speak the same thing. Now, how do we get there? How are we going to get to where there's absolutely no divisions among us? How are we going to reach the point where we are perfectly joined together in the same mind and same judgment? Well, I have, I have a suggestion. And in all of my uh, meditating and dwelling on the cross of Christ, one thing occurred to me that when you gather at the cross, contention's gone. When, you're, when your Savior, your Messiah, is suffering on the cross, when there's this dearth around you, when you're humbled by his sacrifice for your sin, you're not going to argue about stuff. You're not going to disagree about anything. It'll remove all of that junk, all of that garbage. That's how powerful the cross is. But even though the church in Jerusalem was comprised primarily of Jews, uh, it still consisted of an eclectic, it's hard for me to say that word, and diverse group of people. They were very diverse. They were just people just like we are. You put, you put two people together and you got two different people, two different opinions. And I was thinking about this, this uh, thing where they play this thing and, and you hear Yanny or Laurel. I mean, think about that. If, if we played that here, some of you would hear Yanny. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you would hear Yanny, and some of you would hear Laurel. It's not even, it's not even closely related to the same sound. And if, if we are so different that some of you are going to hear Laurel when the real word being spoken is Yanny, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, there are things in our way preventing us from coming together in complete and total perfect alignment to the will of God. We bring all of our differences and our, uh, all of these different idiosyncrasies and things into the mix, and somehow it has to merge into one, one for God. 
If you take the apostles, they were vastly different. They spent three and a half years arguing who was going to be first, who was going to sit on the left of Christ, on the right of Christ. I mean, the, the, the mother of the two, uh, uh, the, the two Zebedee boys even came and asked him, you know, I want to get in here before anybody else does and make my request. They were so different. They were economically pretty much uh, even except for Matthew. Matthew was probably the most wealthy of the 12 apostles unless he had just given everything away to follow Christ, which is very possible. But the church, I want you to see this, the, the church in Jerusalem would have been a cauldron, a cauldron of different temperaments and different personalities, uh, people from different occupations, different social standings and statuses and economic backgrounds. The, the church in Jerusalem was said to be uh, as many as 10,000 strong. That was, a, that was a, a large group of people. And I've always heard you cannot maintain any sense of consensus and agreement in a church over five or 600. Baloney. They did it. They did it. Who says you can't? Because I believe that you can. So in my examining of this very unique concord that existed in the church in Jerusalem, uh, as I pondered uh, their sense of agreement, I also then asked the question to myself, virtually I didn't ask God, I just asked the question, what caused the proliferation of such agreement? What caused such oneness and single-mindedness to emerge and occur among the thousands of believers in the church in Jerusalem? Uh, I formed my own conclusions. This, these are my conclusions. Uh, so I'm making you know that. This is what I came up with is my, from my observation. Uh, and you can do with it what you want to or do nothing with it at all. But in my observations, I discovered there are at least two major factors that led to the level of community that we see in the church in Jerusalem, the first of which is persecution. Persecution. Now, I think you understand that anyone that became a Christian uh, during those times uh, were submitted to uh, inherent danger. It was a dangerous time to be a Christian. Uh, believers were ostracized. They were reviled. They were uh, hated by the Jewish community, and they suffered great hostility at the hands of the Roman government. They were arrested, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, they were crucified, families were separated one from another. Uh, it, wasn't, it, it was much like, at times, like you see in the early days of the German occupation of Germany and Poland and Hungary. People, families torn apart, children ripped out of the arms of their parents and would never be reunited again. It was a, just a horrible time as far as that goes. However, I believe that this is one of the largest and most important factors that caused them to form such a strong social and spiritual bond with one another. Now, we're going to get in our cars in a few minutes. We're going to drive of all different directions. We're going to go home. We're not going to see each other until Sunday morning. But these people didn't do that. They didn't just get in their, their little ox cart and go home and say, praise the Lord, brother and sister. See you all Sunday. No, 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 no. 
they, they were hunkered together. They were literally bound together, uh, not living in fear, but understanding that at any moment uh, our lives can be over. And it drove them together. You see, I'm going to talk about liberty, but liberty has driven us apart. What happened in early America? Because of the oppression of Great Britain, it drove the colonies, it drove the settlers together. They were out on farms and homesteads, and they were spread out. But what happened, they came together to defeat Great Britain. That war brought them together. And so this is what happened, by my observation, in the early church. The persecution that they were uh, undergoing galvanized them like nothing else could. Very, very, very effective. Now, thankfully, we, <coughs> we do not have to contend with a hostile environment in America. Not yet. Not yet. We enjoy uh, a certain degree of civil liberties, and we've enjoyed those liberties, which have been a tremendous blessing to us because it has enabled us to take the Acts 2.38, one God message uh, to virtually every corner of the world. But in absence of a predatory environment, in an absence of a predatory environment, we have not been able to duplicate the unity of the Jerusalem church. The very thing that we think would prevent us from developing that kind of bond of agreement is the very thing that would help us to develop that agreement. So to be honest with you, I think that we've been unable to even determine the reason why we are unable, even with our best efforts given forward uh, to produce that profound spirit of agreement. I'm sure that uh, there was a chemistry, spiritual chemistry. There's, there's a lot more to this than what my feeble mind is, is seeing here. Um, nevertheless, this is what has stood out to me, and I believe it was a very important part of the equation. A second factor, I believe, that led to such a high level of a community within the church in Jerusalem was their lack of economic opportunity. Um, if this is even remotely true, I, I don't read, when I'm, when I'm reading the Gospels and historical accounts of this, I don't read that it was a, a economically prosperous time in Jerusalem or in any part of the world, really, because the Roman government, the taxation, uh, and so on, was very, very harsh. But if it's remotely true that they were economically suppressed, then it is possible that the prosperity that we have enjoyed has actually been a hindrance. Um, I believe that God has allowed America and henceforth apostolic people as well to prosper economically so that we could finance revival throughout the world. 
the United Pentecostal Church alone has uh, invested hundreds of millions of dollars in sending uh, men and women uh, into foreign fields for the, the sheer purpose of preaching the gospel, to save the lost. Uh, predominantly, that money has come from apostolic people, from believers who have been willing to give. I've, I've been in some, I must say, agonizing missionary offerings at General Conference. One was two and a half hours long. Uh, all, all kind of things. Brother Bernard has a gift uh, that we don't have to do that anymore. Thank God he's changed things. But uh, I mean, said that, I, I find it appalling, and we, we had breakfast with Brother and Sister Hopper the other day. They were passing through Fort Myers on their way home from a cruise, and, and we were talking about this very thing, uh, trying to get the people of God not just to give but to enjoy it to enjoy it, to be grateful that they can give to the work of God. So I find it very sad. It's even frustrating that there are apostolic people that resent. They resent. They're bitter about the fact that they're asked to pay 10% of their gross income to the church, to God. Oh, my gosh. It's horrible. It's not... It's, it's Old Testament law. It's not grace. You don't have to do it anymore. Well, then don't. Just don't. If you, if you feel that way about it, you're wasting your money anyway. God's not going to bless you. I'm serious about that. And, and for people, you know, the thing was, years ago, people would throw a dollar in the offering. I'm talking about 30 years ago. A dollar in the offering, and it was laughable. A dollar to even buy even ten dollars today. Really? Are you kidding me? A McDonald's fries and a Coke cost that anymore. So it's sad that people are so uh, they're so uh, I don't even know the word I'm looking for. I'm trying to be nice, and I <laughs> not working out for me. My vocabulary is not allowing that. But we resent giving to God, and we're so stingy. We're so stingy with God in our free will offerings. Well, I don't have to give any. I gave my 10%. Yet now God wants you to, to choose what you're going to give and to enjoy that. And I remember in home missions, uh, I've said this before, and I probably shouldn't because I don't have really a lot of time, but uh, my brother-in-law was complaining that he had to pay $10,000 in income tax that year. This was back in 1980, probably 82 or 3. Had to pay $10,000 in income tax. He always made really good money. And we didn't even come close to making $10,000 that year. I gladly made the money he made and have to pay $10,000 there. See, all things are relative. And I believe that God wants us to give cheerfully, and he loves it when we do. So we live in an atmosphere of uh, economic opportunity. We live in a very prosperous uh, nation or country, and it's caused many of God's people to shift from kingdom pursuits to carnal pursuits. Why would you want to do brain surgery 
and make $5 million a year when you can preach the gospel. Because you don't make $5 million a year preaching the gospel. Get my point? So we pursue money instead of purpose. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many hurtful or many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The Greek word for erred here is epiplaneo. And it basically means seduced. People uh, were seduced by opportunity, seduced by money, which is exactly what happened to the Laodicean church. They were seduced by the prosperity, the opportunity that presented them uh, things in their city. And the seducing spirit had convinced them that their financial gain, their financial blessing, their houses, their money, their material things, their status in the city was uh, how they measured their spirituality. I've told this story also, but I'll tell it again uh, tonight because some have not heard it. When we were in home missions in Illinois, uh, Brother Umvari uh, the head of the church in Hungary came to the United States. What happened was Brother Sobolci, uh, which we knew, had went to Hungary, uh, and he didn't think there were any apostolics there. When he got there, he found a group of apostolic people led by Brother Invari. Brother Invari, they had about, if I remember correctly, 2,500 saints. They thought... They were the only apostolics in the world. God had revealed the oneness to Brother Mbari in Acts 2.38 message. And so when they found out that there's a whole bunch more apostolics in the world, Brother Sobolci brought him to America, and he did a tour of churches, and he came by our church in Bethalto. He spoke to us, of course, through Brother Sobolci, uh, who was his interpreter, and he talked a great deal about the very harsh uh, persecution that they were under in Hungary and the economic conditions, the poverty, and so on. And uh, he said something to us that was very startling. We were his last church he was going to visit before he would go back to Hungary. And he said that, that while the Hungarian saints were enduring persecution and enduring economic hardship, we in America were enjoying liberty and economic prosperity. But then he said, and, he, and, and I sense no resentment within him when he said this, he said, we have been able to bear the cross of persecution and poverty, but the question is, will you be able to bear the cross of liberty and prosperity? And uh, I'm not condemning us for enjoying the things that God has blessed us with. I'm not condemning us for 
driving nice cars, living in nice houses. Um, of course, none of that is the purpose or intent of that. But if that gets in the way of God, you know it becomes idolatry. I've said for years, one of the reasons that some of God's people cannot give like God wants them to because they can't afford to. Credit cards, car payments, house payments, all, all the loan, you know, the interest rate, they just can't afford it because they've buried themselves in debt, making bad choices. But when we, we get involved in things that take our energy, sap our time, wear us out so that we cannot use our gifts for God, that's idolatry. That's the love of money. When we were voted in the church, 17 people present at the, at the business meeting, I was working at, at Builder Square, wasn't making great money, but uh, they, I was on fast track to have my own store within three years. Now, they, yeah, you say, well, Builder Square went, went bankrupt. Yeah, but all those people are now work for Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards. I was on my way to a $150,000, $200,000 a year salary. But when I was voted in the church, it was without question. It, it, it didn't take two seconds to make the decision. I can't. I can't be a manager at Builder Square and pastor of a church. You can't do both. Buy Builder Square. We have to make those decisions. And, uh, well, I won't say what I was thinking, but it's rather personal. So I believe this all appertains to the unity of the church. And it divides us because we are honestly now, we are all pursuing our own thing and we just meet here a couple times a week and have church. That's not the model that's presented to us by the church in Jerusalem. Um, somehow, by the grace of God, we have to become equally committed to the same purpose and the same mission. We have to be equally invested in the purpose of why this church is in Fort Myers. If we're going to examine this issue of unity and agreement, we, we need to at least be honest about it and objective. I remember um, my wife got a job at the Winn-Dixie in Punta Gorda. When we got, got to Florida, we were broke. All we had was our car and clothes in our car. And uh, when I got my first paycheck from Builder Square, uh, we had change in our pockets. All we had left change. So Sister Bruce gets a job at Winn-Dixie, uh, but they wouldn't let her wear dresses or skirts. No, you got to wear the uniform, the pants. She didn't take the job. My mom blew a gasket. Oh, my God. What are you doing? Well, then, because she held to her convictions, the Lord got her a job at CNS Bank, downtown Fort Myers, working in the office, not a bank, 
nine to five, five days a week, doing a job she had never been trained for. She was never qualified for it. That's how God blesses it. If we put God first, you just put the work of God first. That's all you do. Now, I, I, I'm not going to talk much longer. I've got plenty, plenty more to say here. But um, I've always believed, I can't speak for other people because I'm not you or I'm not anybody else. But if, I've always believed if, if you got a job that won't let you go to church, you better get another job. If you got a job where you can't dress holy, you better get another job. If you got a job that you can't be, you get another job. Oh, but it pays really good. Well, God will bless you, get another job. If you can't dress holy, get another job. And yet I see it over and over and over again everywhere I go that people are kept out of church because of their job. Their job. Let's stand together tonight. I don't want to belabor you. That's, that's when the pastor normally stops. And see the title? The rhythm of agreement. There's a reason why that I gave that that title. And you'll find out why next Thursday night. Because agreement and unity has a rhythm to it. There is a rhythm to agreement. And I'll explain why next Thursday. Stay tuned to this station for further announcements about that. So let the worship team lead us in song. Maybe we can take something we've heard tonight and put it in our heart and our soul so that we can retain it for divine reasons and divine purposes. The Lord is good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together.